Once we establish the profile for success, then when you do run people through the assessments, the ones that you want to hire jump off the page at you. Mm -hmm. And then one of the things I always tell people about growth is you have to systematize things. You can't do a series of one-offs. We have a policy and procedures manual that when we open a new branch, here, here's the rule book. Here's how you run this branch. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to wing it and see if this works or doesn't work. And then I'm a big believer in checklists. One thing I learned from Clarence Bachnight, Clarence had a checklist for various types of vacations. He had a scuba diving checklist, a skiing checklist, a hunting checklist. And so I've got checklists. And then all you've got to do is go down the checklist and put a quantity next to boxer shorts, T-shirts, you know, whatever you need for the trip. Mm -hmm. And when you have checklists for things, you don't forget anything. Welcome back to Noob School. This is where we interview successful business owners, and we dial it back to the beginning and figure out what they did to make their revenue grow. <clears throat> Welcome back to Noob School. Um, today, a special friend, Jim Sobeck. Jim is the CEO and owner of New South Construction Supply based right here in Greenville, and I have seen uh, Jim and New South grow um, tremendously all throughout the Southeast uh, since he acquired it uh, back in 2001. One. Right after 9-11. Okay. It's probably got a good price. Got a discount because of 9-11. That's good. Well, well, again, thanks for being here. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Jim and I have been friends um, it's been a long time. I can't remember when it started, but I, I think I met you at, at a, we had a breakfast club we used to go to. The first time I met you, I interviewed you for a job at BMA. <laughs> you did? And you turned it down and went with DataStream, oh, and really? that worked out really well for you. So good oh. call turning me down. Wow, gosh. Were you going to hire me? Um, yeah, I was thinking about that, it. That's right. That's right. Clarence Bachnight asked me to talk to you. Yes, that's right. That's how we met. And you said I, my Colby's, my scores were Almost got me kicked out of there, but I had some kind of corporate hook where right. I would follow some of the rules you set. Right. Just enough. Yeah. With the uh, DISC, if your compliance goes all the way down, it's an SOB curve, and yours kicked up where you could take orders. And right. I guess that was going to the Citadel, drill that in. Well, yeah. So that's called the corporate hook. Okay. Okay. Corporate hook. Yeah. Okay. But I guess shortly after that, once I became a sales manager, we started a breakfast club. Right. It was me and you and Marty Osborne and Mike Bauer. Mm-hmm. Was there anybody else? Do you remember? I don't recall, but I do recall that we would do that. And I advocate that for our salespeople to start, um, we call it a leads club, where they get together with people in the same industry, but they don't compete with. Mm-hmm. So like one of our guys in Charleston, who's I'm going there for his retirement dinner, sadly, on Thursday night. He's in two leads groups. And for example, he sells construction supplies. One guy rents porta potties. Mm-hmm. So they know about every job going yeah. on. One guy rents equipment. Another guy is a concrete uh, pumping company. Yeah. And so they are all in construction, but don't compete with each other. And they all swap leads. And when you get 12 people together yeah. in the same industry, 
you don't miss any job that's going on in that market. Right. They own it. Well, we did that. All I guess all four of us were in technology and, um, you know, Mike's built a great company, ScanSource, multi-billion dollar tech company. Yep. And DataStream did well. And your all of your ventures have gone well. And then Marty Osborne just sold his company yep. to Price Waterhouse. So I guess you got to have those breakfast clubs are a pretty good idea. It's all about networking. You know, I'm my uh, brother is a great marketeer and a networker. And we were at breakfast a few years ago. He said, how many contacts do you have in your phone? I said, I don't have time to count them. And I didn't know this. He said, scroll all the way down to past Z, and yeah. it gives you your number. Yeah. And so he held me, held his phone up, and he was real proud. He had 8,800, and I went down to mine. I said, amateur, 14,000, 14, something like that. You know, so if I meet somebody and I'm impressed by them, I get their contact info, and you never know. I contact people 12, 15 years after I met them. Yeah. I think that's cool. And those four people that we used to have breakfast with once a week all wanted to do well in the in the technology field. That was kind of our common goal. And everybody did. And everyone did. And we would call each other and say, have you tried this? Or mm -hmm. did you know about this? And we, we shared some board members and um, we shared some employees. A lot of times we would interview somebody that didn't quite fit what we needed, but we give them to you or give them to Mike. Um, so anyway, it's a... It's, uh, it's a trick, I think, that can be used. It doesn't cost anything. Well, and I think you know, your father met me for lunch at Stax Omega when I was trying to buy New South, and I didn't have the money that I needed. <laughs> and he sketched out on a napkin how I could structure the deal with uh, mezzanine money and senior lender and outside investors and had puts and calls and bought out the outside investors and I've told your dad many times, if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't own the company I own today. Hmm. He gave me the total structure of the deal. That's great. That's great. Well, pays pays the now network. I know your son. I know the whole Sterling family. Good family <laughs> to know. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, well, let's start with where you are today. We'll go backwards in a minute, but let's tell us about New South Construction and um, where you are today and kind of how you got there. Well, I bought New South Construction Supply in November 1 of 2001, shortly after 9-11. And I was concerned that 9-11 was going to cause a global recession. And I was doing due diligence on the what was then only five locations, the fifth location in Charleston the day that the Twin Towers got hit. And I was going through the due diligence kind of like a zombie. I was stunned about what had happened. And the former owner of New South called me and he said, you ain't thinking about backing out of this deal, are you? And I really hadn't thought about that at all. I was just worried about what was going to happen with the world. But give me a little opening, I'll jump into it. And I said, well, now that you mention it. <laughs> and I uh, said, you know, I, I don't know that it's a good time to do the deal. And ended up, uh, he negotiated against himself and lowered the price and took more seller paper. And um, so bought the company It was doing just shy of 10 million at out of five locations. So I'm not a math whiz, but I can I can figure out that was an average of $2 million a location. But I like the platform. I love the phrase, there's riches and niches. And they sold concrete, masonry, and waterproofing contractors. They didn't sell all sorts of contractors, plumbers, electricians, you know, HVAC guys. They had those three niches and they were category killers within that niche. 
And there was no, at that time, there is now, there was no national competitor. There was no 800-pound gorilla that could step on me. And so I decided it was a, a good deal and bought the company. And this year, we've been in hyper growth for two years uh, due to a couple things. Um, and I'll come back to that in a second. But, you know, we're on track to do a little over $100 million from $10 million. Nice. And, um, and that's with two recessions, the Great Recession, 2008-2010 was no fun. Lost money three years in a row. I don't like losing at anything, much less at business. And plugged uh, plugged through it all and made that a success. And um, But the things that helped us in the last two years go into hypergrowth is when the pandemic hit, a lot of people who had been resistant to online shopping had to shop online, including my wife, who didn't like to buy groceries or furniture or anything online. But when you're locked down, you, people had to do it. So that created a huge demand for e-commerce fulfillment mm -hmm. warehouses and e-commerce data centers. And we had gotten into tilt-up construction a few years ago, and all of these big warehouses are built via the tilt-up method, which simply is you pour the slab, then you pour the walls on the slab, and you use a crane to lift them up into place, and then the tilt-up braces hold the walls in place while they set in the grout bed. Mm -hmm. And it's the fastest and cheapest way to build a building. Mm -hmm. And so these giant warehouses, the biggest one that we've supplied, Walmart uh, Import Distribution Center in Ridgeville, South Carolina, 26 miles north of Charleston, 3 million square feet. Imagine 2,400 loading docks. And um, you know that building was built in less than a year. If you built that conventional construction with concrete block, lay and block, it'd be three or four years, yeah. not to mention double or triple the cost. Yeah. So as the demand for these data centers and distribution centers went through the roof, we had gotten into tilt-up about a year before because I was seeing more and more tilt-up buildings going up. And um, we were in the right place at the right time. And a lot of successful people think it's all them. It's hard work, but it's also luck and timing. And we were in the right place at the right time with the right products, and then we capitalized on it. And that has really fueled our hypergrowth, the pandemic and tilt-up. Yeah, but I would add to that for, for the listeners, you know, you've got to be in the game for the luck to mean anything. Right. You're not only in the game, and we'll get to this in a minute, but your whole, almost since you were a teenager, you've been learning kind of the construction supply field and, and not just you know, roofing materials, but how the software works and the billing and the whole thing. So, you know, yeah, there's there's some good fortune that comes along, but you have to be ready for it. And you, you were ready for it. Oh, an opportunity knocks. You've got to be there, and then you've got to answer the door. You've got to answer the door. Yeah. Um, well, that's awesome, man. So how many locations is it now? We have um, 10 now. 10 now. We're under a letter of intent for an 11th. Okay. And we've gone from just the Carolinas to... The Carolinas, Georgia, and Florida. So that means that the the revenue per store has gone up to ten million. We're doing average about ten million a store That's from strong. two million. That's strong. That's strong. And with tilt up, the braces that we rent are in very short supply. And one of the things that I will talk about is hitching your wagon to a gazelle mm -hmm. that outruns the rest of the pack. Well, we hitched our wagon to a gazelle that's a over a billion dollar concrete contractor owned by the Pritzker family, uh, their family office in Chicago that owns Hyatt Hotels and over a thousand other businesses. 
And so we are supplying them now on jobs from Pennsylvania to Texas because we just ship everything on common carriers. We don't have to run our trucks up to New Jersey and Pennsylvania and Alabama and Florida. Mm -hmm. We just use common carriers to haul it out to the job site. Yeah, cool. So you built a heck of a business, and um, it's in in the construction supply field. So now let's back up to how you got started in that in that area. And so I suppose it goes back to, I think I know the story, but in high school that your, your dad was involved in that. Actually grade school. Um, grade school. My 12th birthday, my father said, happy birthday, no more allowance from now on. You could ride your bike down to the warehouse about four blocks south of our house. And there'll be a to-do list for you to do. And you'll get a pay envelope on Friday, like all the other people. And um, we were union and banks used to close. Younger people don't know this, but banker's hours is a phrase young people aren't familiar with. Banks used to close at 3 p.m. on Friday, so giving a paycheck was no good. They couldn't cash it till Monday, and most construction workers live paycheck to paycheck. So we had to pay in cash, and the first envelope I got, I opened it up, and I remember there was $28 in there and all cash money, and I said, damn, I'm rich. You know, yeah. Back then, you know, sound like an old guy that I am. I'll be 68 in December. You could get a Coke for a nickel, a Hershey bar for a nickel. So 28 bucks went a hell of a long way. Mm-hmm. And then my father also said, whatever you save towards a car, I'll match. And so I saved up $2,800. And on my 16th birthday, he said, show me your passbook savings. I don't think they have that anymore either. And he wrote me a check for $2,800. And for $5,600, I wasn't able to get a brand new car, but it was a one-year-old car with about 8,000 miles on it. And, you know, so then I got used to having my own car and I just learned hard work puts money in your pocket and money, you know, doesn't solve all problems, but money gives you options, which properly exercise can lead to happiness. Mm-hmm. I agree. And so when you were working in that warehouse, what, what was, what was in the warehouse? It was um, roofing materials. So okay. my father was in the roofing business, commercial roofing schools, malls, okay. that kind of thing. And so I started off just sweeping up and loading trucks, and then when I got a driver's license, driving a non-CDL truck, making deliveries to job sites. Then I worked up on the roofs, and I um, every summer worked on roofing crews, and I learned what I didn't want to do for the rest of my <laughs> life. Every summer I went back to school in the fall, re-motivated to you know, do better at school so yeah. I didn't have to be a roofer the rest of my life. But you know, then one summer my father couldn't hire me because— the union hall had people that weren't employed and you couldn't hire even your own kid who didn't have a union card if the union guys weren't working. So I worked at a mobile home plant as a welder, welding frames Mm -hmm. for mobile homes. And um, I was a truck driver. Mm -hmm. I did a variety of odd jobs, but never been afraid of hard work and um, always liked it, giving me money to be able to do what I wanted to do. And so I know... Where did you go to college? I went to King's College in Wilkes-Barre, Pennsylvania. King's College. And I worked pretty much full-time because it was only seven miles from home. So I took um, classes three days a week, which gave me two days off, which I worked full day, full t- full-time. And the three days I did take classes, I took 8, 9, and 10 a.m. classes. So I was done by 10.15. I'd be at the office by 11.15. So I was working 30 to 40 hours a week while going to college carrying full 15 credit load okay. and playing football and rugby. And then what did you study at college? Political science. 
Okay. Uh, pre-law. I wanted to be a lawyer when I was a kid. The Perry Mason show intrigued me. <laughs> me too. <laughs> and um, so I wanted to be a lawyer, and that was my original intention with going to college. Yeah. I wanted to be a detective like Magnum P.I. That was my— Tom Selleck with a Ferrari. Yeah. That didn't work out. Um, so I kind of fell for the poli-sci thing, too. I thought I wanted to be a lawyer, and thank goodness for my, for my case. In your case, probably, too, we took another path. Um, so you played rugby in college and football, too? Yeah. Okay. Well, you had a pretty full full schedule. Yeah, it didn't give me the greatest grades in the world. But um, when um, at BMA sent me to the executive program at Wharton School, I always felt bad about my gentleman C. I had a 2-7. And um, one of the readings we had to do was a famous article from Harvard Business Review, The Myth of the Well-Educated Manager. Mm-hmm. And it, what it postulated was, at that time, 72% of Fortune 500 CEOs had been C students. We've all heard the phrase, C students hire and employ A students. Mm-hmm. And I found out that when I thought playing football, partying, chasing girls, playing rugby was you know goofing off, I found out I was at Wharton. They told me I was developing my leadership skills. <laughs> And so, but I do know, and I employ a lot of people that were for us students, and they're great at their jobs, but they're not the greatest motivators and leaders. And so you do develop a lot of leadership skills, you know, playing basketball at the Citadel, playing in Europe. You know, I I hire athletes. I look for athletes because if you've played a team sport and if you've had to go to practices and in football, if you had to do two days in the summer, Mm -hmm. you know, um, I mean, those were brutal. And to me, riding around in an air-conditioned car making sales calls. That was a piece of cake compared to two-a-days. Yeah, I agree. So <clears throat> for the noobs, you know, unbelievable work ethic from the time you're 12, uh, learned the trades, working on roofs, you know, so you're kind of still on this path to be in, in this field. And I'd say college with the, with the pre-law and stuff, you didn't get much back college-wise to help you, but you did keep working along the way until you got out. So you got out of school. What was the first job? was with um, Fry Roofing, and they were based in Chicago. They had 24 roofing plants across the U.S. And unbeknownst to me, when I took the job, Mr. Fry Sr. was 86, and Mr. Fry Jr. was 65, and the company was up for sale. (laughs) And um, so I take a job with a sinking ship, And uh, it worked out great because after almost two years there, Owens Corning, multinational class company, bought them. And I got called in for an interview. I didn't know if I was going to get fired or what. And the national sales manager for the roofing division said, I'm either going to do the smartest thing or the dumbest thing I've ever done. Only time will tell. I'm 23 years old and made me a regional manager over six branches for the sale of roofing products in the Southwest U.S. moved me to Dallas, Texas. And, um, you know, here I am, 23 years old, and I've got six branches that I'm responsible for, $180 million of P&L responsibility at 23 <laughs> years old. Baptism by fire. Jeez. That's amazing. So how did that go? Went very well, and um, I was only there about two years, and our biggest customer, Owens Corning at that time, was Builder Marts of America mm. in Greenville, founded by Clarence Bachnight and Tom Rowe. 
And they made me an offer at 25 to become a partner. And um, I said to Clarence, oh, this offer letter, you know, say I can buy $100,000 worth of stock. The problem is I'm 25. I don't have 100000 And he said, I'll co-sign the note for you at the bank. <laughs> and that changed my life because I became a partner. Yeah, We started several companies. We took one public, as you know, the long-distance telephone company. When they deregulated long distance, we started leasing uh, long lines from AT&T. We leased two Nortel switches, <clears throat> hired a lot of young Turks out of the Citadel, mm -hmm. and training was about a half day. <laughs> Get somebody's uh, phone bill, look at what they're paying per minute. Here's our rate. Show them how much a month they'll save and go close the deal. Yeah. And um, I think four years later, we took that company public. Yeah. And I uh, was out of town, and my wife opened up a check that came in the mail. Uh, as we sold it, and we ended up selling it. And I said, there's how much in there? But, you know, that if I'd never become a partner at BMA, if yeah. I'd never left Owens Corning, if I'd never left Owens Corning, I'd probably be a retired regional manager living in the villages in Florida. Yeah, you know, I'd been comfortable. Yeah. But, you know, Clarence said to me, you can stay, <clears throat> excuse me, you can stay with Owens Corning and be comfortable the rest of your life or you can come with me and be a partner and get rich. Mm -hmm. And that kind of closed the deal for me. He was right. He was right. Depends on how you and view the, rich. Well, right? and, but the fact that he co-signed the note, too, uh, I mean. How many people would do that? How can you say no? You're like, yeah, let's, let's do it. Yep. You know, that's beautiful. Well, BMA, Builder March of America, for, for the noobs who don't know, it was just a wonderful success story here in Greenville, the first major distributor of building supplies. Right, it distributed big building supplies to lumber yards. Well, not the first, but what we did was we were a for-profit buying group competing with nonprofit co-ops. Okay, and people would say to me, prospects, how can you save me more money than LMC? They don't make a profit; they're a nonprofit company. And a phrase I used to use is, "Do you ever use UPS?" They're a profit-making company, but U.S. Postal Service is nonprofit. <laughs> why do you use UPS? Yeah. You know, why do you have, why do you have a problem? Uh, you know, why do you not have a problem using UPS when they make a profit? They have people that care about the business. They have a profit incentive. They're shareholders. They have stock options, and they work harder. How many people do you ever see in the Postal Service that died of a heart attack? <laughs> you know, and so um, that was our pitch, and grew the company. Well, when I started, it was $82 million, but Clarence started it with Tom Rose at, at zero. And I think 23 years at $932 million sold the company. So almost hit a billion dollars. Yeah, that's awesome. In little old Greenville, South Carolina. Great story and brought many people like yourself to Greenville. Yep. It has been good, great for the town. We had Bill Lee on uh, a few weeks ago. Well, you look at all the successes that spun out of BMA, Charlie Hauser, yeah. Leighton Cubbage, Dean Varner, yeah. I mean, Ned Carter. I mean, there were so many people. It was like a finishing school for business people. Yeah. Well, just to uh, summarize where we are so far, I mean, Jim, great work ethic, learned all about the building trades. I think you, you got that first roofing job probably pretty easily based on your background. I had 12 offers. Right, because you, you you had all this experience. You could tell them about the squares and the this and the temperature and whatever you know about actually right. doing roofing that I would know. Um, and then the fact that they promoted you so quickly, I mean, anybody who who saw that would think this guy's got to be a real star. So at, at every turn, I think people are able to see this this shine. 
And that's why Clarence wanted to pluck you away. Well, when Clarence sent me to Dallas at 27, back to Dallas after three years in Greenville, to open the Dallas office in 82 and San Francisco in 84, I said to him years later, what the hell were you thinking? To send a 27-year-old out to lease the top floor of First Texas Tower and hire all these people, he said, I thought long and hard about who to send out there. And he said, I knew you were young and inexperienced. I knew you'd make a lot of mistakes, but I knew you wouldn't make them twice. <laughs> and I knew, couldn't think of anybody else that would put the effort in that you put in, and it worked out. Nice. But God, I made mistakes. Yeah. What kind of mistakes? Hiring people, you know, mainly hiring mistakes, you know, not spending the time. Our mutual friend, Bill Lee, calls it hire slowly mm -hmm. and fire quickly. Mm -hmm. You know, take your time in hiring, and when you decide somebody's not right, don't let it drag on for a year or two. Right. Go ahead and, and pull the plug because you're both miserable. Anybody not succeeding in their job isn't having fun. Right. And as their manager, you're not having fun. So end the misery for both. So if, if we're going under the assumption here that you, if you're hiring, that you want to get the right person for the job and that it, that's for their best interest too. Right. So when you're hiring now, what kind of things are you looking for that would make them the right fit for, let's say, one of your sales jobs? Well, I mentioned we're very prejudiced towards athletes. Mm -hmm. You know, people who've played a team sport, people who've gutted it out through practice, people who've learned how to win and also how to lose, how to bounce back from losing. We really do look for jocks. Um, but then beyond that, we look for a lot of other things. We use the Wonderlick intelligence test to look for smarts mm -hmm. because you can't make chicken salad out of chicken shit. Mm -hmm. I mean, if somebody's not too bright, I don't care how hard they work, <laughs> they're going to make mistakes. In our business, quoting multi-million dollar jobs, you know, you can lose your butt if somebody can't do basic math. We're not yeah. talking about calculus here. Right. We're talking about <laughs> multiplication, division, subtraction. So we look for at least the 100 IQ. And that's basically a 25 on the Wonderlick test. And a lot of people know the Wonderlick from the NFL Combine. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, the highest score ever was the recently retired quarterback Ryan Fitzgerald, who no, no surprise went to Harvard. Mm -hmm. And the lowest ever was Vince Young, um, you know, Heisman Trophy winner Texas, from Texas. Yeah. And Vince had a seven. And I'm not trying to be funny or cute here because it's sad. Seven is legally retarded. Mm -hmm. And Vince bombed out of the league, filed bankruptcy. And, you know, so intelligence is important. So wow. we look for that. And then we use a battery of assessments. I think you're familiar with all of them. We use the DISC and it shows dominance, influencing ability, steadiness, and compliance. So for a salespeople, you obviously want high influencing ability, not low. Mm -hmm. And you want um, low steadiness where they can multitask and keep 10, 20 prospects juggling and take care of customers. And you want enough stubbornness they don't give up easily. But we mentioned earlier the corporate hook. You want that, you want the low steadiness for multitasking. Then you want that compliance to kick up somewhere. Mm -hmm. They'll at least follow some, some yeah. orders, maybe not yeah. all. And then we use the Colby. I know you're familiar with that. And that shows fact finder, follow through, quick start, and implementer. Mm -hmm. Most are pretty self-evident. Fact finders, do you get your facts straight? Follow through, do you follow up? Quick start, do you need a kick in the ass to get going? Or do you need to be reined in? And um, implementer is the one that faked me out at first. It's not how you implement plans, but it's how you deal with manual implements. 
I'm a two in quick start. I hire people to hang pictures. I'm not a handy guy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I see somebody that has got a nine in implementer and they want a sales job, they're only going to do it for the money. They want to be building their cabinet, the mm-hmm. lake. They want to build kitchen cabinets yeah. in their basement. Yeah. So we use that. And then we use the AQ, the Athene quotient, which measures 20 things about a person. And the interesting thing about this is it measures work side and personal side. And you'll see somebody who's got a great work side, pro, work side profile. And then you'll see their personal profile is in shambles. And you have to watch what you ask people in interviews. So I'll say to somebody, I'm puzzled by this. Your work side is perfect. And your personal side is does not look good at all. And then I'll just stop. Well, I'm going through a real ugly divorce. Mm-hmm. And, you know, or there's some other issue. And, you know, especially hiring, when I was hiring a COO recently, you don't want to hire a COO who's going through an ugly divorce. Mm-hmm. That's that's going to be first on his mind, not right. taking care of business. Yeah. And, you know, the guy that I hired, his work side and his personal side were very much in harmony. We had about the same DISC profile. We were both high quick start guys. You know, um, there was a previous person that washed out. He had a two in quick start to my seven. Mm -hmm. And I was constantly kicking him in the ass. And he got tired of being kicked and I got tired of kicking. And so, you know, when you have those, I call them windows into someone's soul, Mm -hmm. you can do a much better job of hiring. So if you look at their background and you look at if they played sports and then intelligence and the psychological profile, if all those things mesh, your chances of success are much higher. Yeah, I totally agree. That's wonderful. You do more than I do because you're probably more thorough. But um, the question, the pushback I get sometimes on that kind of hiring is people like, oh, God, how, how, how am I going to find someone that fits all this? And, you know, my answer is, well, if you don't, you shouldn't be hiring anybody, right? I mean, if you don't find the right fit, do without. Absolutely. Never put a warm body in a slot. Our COO was looking for a market president for North Carolina. He interviewed 92 people until he found the right person. There you go. And it's awful tempting when you have an opening to fill right. to jam a warm body in there, but you're going to regret it sooner right. or later. Right. So he waited for Mr. Perfect, and man, did he find him. I mean, this guy's only on board about a month, and I'm already blown away. I think, Jim, I think it's when people ask me about the data stream growth from one salesperson to to 100, you know, how did that happen? And I think when we discovered the Colby, when Bill helped me and we discovered the Colby and hiring athletes and people from Clemson Furman Citadel um, and just kind of started narrowing on what we looked for, once we figured out what we needed and that we could find them, Larry and I looked at each other and we could do this. We could hire 80 more people like this because the market was big enough. That's when we had our little moment. Did you have a moment like that at New South where you're like, oh, my gosh, I think I've I think I can do this 10 times. Yeah. Well, once we established the profile for success, then when you do run people through the assessments, the ones that you want to hire jump off the page at you. Mm -hmm. And then one of the things I always tell people about growth is you have to systematize things. You can't do a series of one-offs. We have a policy and procedures manual that when we open a new branch, here, here's the rule book. Here's how you run this branch. Mm -hmm. And you don't have to wing it and see if this works or doesn't work. And then I'm a big believer in checklists. 
one thing I learned from Clarence Bachnight, Clarence had a checklist for various types of vacations. He had a scuba diving checklist, <laughs> a skiing checklist, a hunting checklist. And so I've got checklists. And then all you've got to do is go down the checklist and put a quantity next to boxer shorts, T-shirts, you know, whatever you need for the trip. Mm -hmm. And when you have checklists for things, you don't forget anything. Yeah. Yeah, I got it. Well, you're right. <clears throat> you're right. And uh, I suppose you can keep doing that. And you're, you can go to 11, 12, 13. You've got the, the manual now. Right. Okay. So Clarence, Clarence had you. And then I want to make sure we cover this chapter. You did a lot of different things for BMA. And then you segued into, y'all bought or started a software company? Now, BMA owned a software company. Okay. And it was failing. And it was losing about $2 million a year, had negative net worth of $4.4 million. If it wasn't owned by BMA with cross-guarantees, it would have been bankrupt. Mm -hmm. And I was itchy to run my own show mm -hmm. after a while. Yeah, I was still naive enough to think I knew it all. And <laughs> um, so Clarence said to me, a young guy like you ought to know something about computers I'd like you to go downstairs and get in the computer business. And I said, Clarence, I don't even have a PC. Mm -hmm. I don't know anything about computers. It's all the more reason you ought to go. So I went down as VP of sales for enterprise computer systems. Mm -hmm. And two years after I was there, um, Clarence made me president and COO. And he said in his inimitable fashion, if you don't screw things up, I'll make you CEO in another couple of years. <laughs> so at 38, he made me CEO yeah. and did um, eight acquisitions in a um, 15-year period and grew that company exponentially and got a call one day um, that there was an investment bank that was looking to buy the business mm -hmm. for, on behalf of a client and sold it and took some time off did a little soul searching about what I wanted to do and wanted to have my own show. I didn't want to have any partners anymore and I couldn't come up with the money. And your father structured the deal for me. Here's how the various layers you put in your money, get investors, get senior debt, get mezzanine debt, and then over time pay off the mezzanine, buy out the investors. And my family and I have owned a hundred percent of the company for about Six years now. Nice, nice. But without your dad's advice, I probably would have given up and said, I can't do this. Well, I can't swing it. Well, that's, I'm so glad. Well, you were smart enough to reach out to people to ask for help. And I always say surround yourself with people smarter than you and then listen to them. Well, you know, I like you, I've got a lot of friends, a lot of people I've worked with in the past. And the ones that are most likely to call me and say, John, I've got this thing I'm working on. I want your opinion. They're the most successful people. People right. you would think would never call me for advice, but they'll probably call five people and ask that question. Right. And it's a free call. Well, and we have a, a board of directors that are all outsiders, and we have five outside directors and me. And most privately held companies, it's the owner, his wife, his golf buddy, and his lawyer. Yeah. And, you know, uh, and you know, on Enterprises Board, Richard Brock. Yeah. And, um, you know, we had really good board, that company, this company, we were like a, a public company board. We run the board meetings like we're public. We have the minutes of every board meeting back to 2001. 
And Clarence always said, run the company like you're going to sell it tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And that way, if you do go to sell it, you can do it quickly because we have audited statements. We have all the board minutes. We have a, a real, real board of directors and somebody, you know, if I was going to sell it, which I'm not, I'm converting to an ESOP employee stock ownership plan. And all the people who've been loyal to me for the last 20 years are going to end up being owners of the company. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. And didn't BMA do that? Or BMA had the first ESOP in South Carolina. Yeah, that's that's strong. That's a great way to do it, Jim. That's great. Uh, a couple more questions. Um, I always ask people about head trash because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm fascinated with it and how, you know, we all get this head trash in our brains from school or parents or friends or TV or something. And, you know, things like, you know, I'm too old to start a business or I'm too young to start a business or I went to the wrong school to do this or, you know, the list goes on and on. Can you talk about any head trash that you've had in your brain that you've overcome? You figured out what's wrong and gotten over it? Well, the only head trash I've ever had, because I'm an you know, incurable optimist, mm -hmm. um, not much gets me down. But I read an article about imposter syndrome mm -hmm. probably 20 years ago, and that some people say, I don't deserve this success. I'm faking it. I'm an imposter. <laughs> I'm going to be found out that I really don't know what the hell I'm doing. Yeah. And I did have a little period of in, in, uh, imposter syndrome where I was worried that, you know, I was just winging it and I, my luck was going to run out. But, um, you know, just kept plotting on and making things work. And it's been a long time since I've worried about imposter syndrome. <laughs> I bet. I bet. Yeah, I think... Uh, I think I've read the solution there is to acknowledge that it's in the brain somewhere and just go ahead and do it anyway, right? You know, and a big part is being a lifelong learner. You know, there is no finish line. I have a friend who proudly proclaims he's not read a book since college. <laughs> and I mean, if I had not done that, I would that would be one of my deepest, darkest secrets. Right. And he's, well, I just like magazines, you know. Yeah. And, um, you know, what I really am hooked on lately is podcasts. You know, I used to listen to music. I'd see you at the Y working out. Yeah. And now I listen to podcasts every yeah. day. When yeah. I'm at the gym, I was listening to a podcast on my way here today. Yeah. I listen to podcasts every waking moment. And um, sometimes I'm just cleaning up email. I put my AirPods in. I listen to a podcast while I'm responding to emails. Yeah. But it's like getting a PhD for free. All mm -hmm. the different subjects that <clears throat> that I learn from listening to podcasts. Right. And then I still am a sucker for reading and going to seminars. And I'm in a worldwide group of CEOs called Chief Executives Organization. And we have um, events all around the world and bring in thought leaders on all sorts of subjects. And, you know, there just is no finish line with learning. And I feel sorry for people who think they've reached it because right. there is none. There's no, yeah. I know there's I none with you. I agree. No. So what are you listening to these days? Well, I love Freakonomics. Okay. And I love a spinoff from Freakonomics called No Stupid Questions. Okay. Stephen Dubner, who wrote, co-wrote uh, Freakonomics with uh, uh, Steve Levitt, um, he does No Stupid Questions with a, a professor of uh, psychology from uh, UPenn. And um, that's an outstanding one. And then... Um, one I was listening to on the way down, and I just finished it in the parking lot, one called Dirty Money, a guy from Atlanta called Paul Ollinger. Mm -hmm. 
who retired young. He was in investment banking and then was with Facebook. And it was the story of Carlos Ghosn mm. and him escaping from Japan mm -hmm. and his years in Greenville. Yeah. I don't know if you remember when Carlos Ghosn ran Michelin North America out at Pelham Road. Yeah. He was 31 years old. Yeah. And Francois Michelin made him president of Michelin North America at 31. And he listened to his rise and fall yeah. and the hubris that got him mm. when he started cutting corners and hiding uh, payments to himself and things like that. And that was fascinating. I really enjoy that one a lot. Um, I like anything related to sports and leadership. And there's one called uh, The Corporate Leader. And uh, it talks about Don Yeager, the author, about how most Fortune 500 CEOs played college sports. Mm. And that's a really good one. Um, there's just so many uh, podcasts. A guy named Bradley Hartman, mm -hmm. who Bill Lee introduced me to. Uh, Bradley does a lot of podcasts on the construction industry mm -hmm. and a lot of thought leaders from that industry. So, you know, Joe Rogan. I mean, there's so many podcasts. Yeah. Uh, there's... I read recently there's something like 30 million podcasts out there floating around in yeah, the ether. Right. And you get to hear people talk about their specialty, whatever you're into. Right. It's pretty cool. So add Noob School to the list. We've got an excellent podcast. Some of your best friends will be on here. Yeah, no, I've listened to them. Okay, good. Um, last question, what's your favorite word? My favorite word is relentless. Um, <laughs> you know, I know that shocks you, but— you know, to me, you just have to be relentless and never give up. And I'll try to make this quick story. Clarence was so proud of me over this. I was relentless trying to get an appointment to see two brothers that in their 30s took over a family lumberyard, a big one in St. Louis, and try to get them to become a customer of ours. And I couldn't even get an appointment. And I figured, you know, if they meet me, you know, we're similar ages. They're going to like me. And I just couldn't get in the door. So I was calling for appointments. I got to know the receptionist, and she just said, you know, the answer is no. Mm. So I fly to St. Louis. I rent a car. I drive there. I walk in, and I told her my name. She said, oh, God, no. <laughs> you know, I've told you that the Millmans don't want to see you. Yeah. And I said, yeah, well, I mean, I'll take an educated note from anyone. Tell them I came all the way from South Carolina. If they give me 15 minutes and tell me to leave, I'll never bother you or them again. So she buzzed him, and, you know, she said, because of that, I will call him. He told me never to mention you again. <laughs> and so she said, he told me to tell you to leave or to call the police and have you arrested for trespass after notice. And I sat down in a chair like this. I said, call the cops. I'm not going. I'm not being a quitter. And so she buzzes the CEO again. <laughs> yeah, he's right here. He said he's not leaving. Okay, I will said, last chance, I'm calling the cops. I said, go for it. I picked the magazine up from the coffee table. And so I'll be right here. 15 minutes later, two cops walk in, walk over to her. And she points to me. Guys come over and say, what's going on? I said, these guys won't see me. I'm sitting out here until they will. <laughs> That's not how it works, son. You know, young enough to still call me son. And he said, you know, you got to leave. Just trespass after notice. I said, not going. It's your last chance, sir. We're going to arrest you for trespass after notice. I said, you're going to have to arrest me because I'm not a quitter. And I got up and uh, they handcuffed me and put me in the squad car, took me down the station. And they said, if you promise you'll never go back there again, we'll just let you go. I said, I can't do that. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm, I'm going to go back. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> so I ended up, I got a $100 ticket for trespass after notice. 
and I put it on my expense report because I knew Clarence would approve it. Yeah. And Clarence was so proud of me. And I tell my salespeople, you can quit on a prospect when you get arrested for trespass yes. after notice. Now, Other than that, you keep calling them until they buy or you die. That's right. I totally agree. I knew you would. You totally agree. You, you, you've established, that's one of my favorite stories. You established the bar. For, okay, now we can check them off the list. Yeah. I love it. Well, listen. I know you're busy building this darn $100 million company, but I appreciate you coming, uh, and I appreciate your your wonderful, long friendship between our families. No, it's been great. Our families have been helpful to each other, and knowing you all these years and watching you reinvent yourself several times yeah. and never know what you're going to look like. I know. I know ponytail now. Playing saxophone and all that <laughs> stuff. So uh, thank you, John. It's thank been you, my, my pleasure. Friend. Appreciate it, Jim. Take care. All right.